Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Hey folks, Uncle Norm here. After ten years of reading and publishing weird stories, I mean some really out there stuff, you'd think that almost nothing might surprise a fellow like me at this point, wouldn't ya? I mean, we ran a story about a giant sentient Soviet war squid having an existential crisis once for God's sakes, and the weirdness well has gone deeper than that by far. But new shades of weirdness, of the strange and unexpected, always seems to find a way into our lives, whether we seek it on the page or experience it ourselves off the page. And for that, we should be grateful, even when it makes us a bit uncomfortable. Weirdness shakes things up. It breaches the veil of mundanity in our lives. It challenges us to grow, to see things differently, and it pushes us to live a more rich and full life. That's what makes weird stories, whether they're our favorite works of fiction or our most remarkable of personal experiences, beautiful, in my opinion. Beautiful and terrifying and baffling and inspiring and nauseating and hilarious and so many other things. As I mentioned in last week's episode, which wound up being last month's episode, which was the late holiday episode, <laughs> I've had some random health issues making Drabblecast production and life in general rather challenging. Nothing crazy, let's just say, if you ever come across a huge steaming cavern full of strange leathery eggs, don't go sticking your face and flashlight into the first one you see. Leave that to Executive Officer Kane. Anyways, recovery had been going well, and we were about to get back into the swing of things here when all of a sudden I woke up one morning puking blood, which was hugely disconcerting because on this occasion it happened to be my blood. I was rushed to the hospital, and it turned out I had end-stage liver disease and was tiptoeing into kidney failure. My biliary ducts were all screwed up, things were going south suddenly and unexpectedly quick, and the weird thing in this case was that I mostly still felt normal. How's that for ironic? Well, to make a short story podcast intro shorter, the next several weeks were a total blur that involved an emergency helicopter ride to Atlanta, a prognosis of days to live, a hair-raising two-day wait on a transplant list, a full day of surgery, a new liver and a bon voyage to a gallbladder, and a full Robocop weapons arsenal cybernetically installed to replace 80% of my torso, which unfortunately then had to be re-replaced back to my normal torso due to complications with insurance. What can you do? I pulled through, though, thanks to the amazing surgeons and folks at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. They were amazing, and I'm so extremely grateful to them. And, most of all, to the donor, who I'll perhaps never even know the name of, who saved my life with theirs. 
I wouldn't be here right now, folks. Episode 420, Comfort and Joy by Tim Pratt, would literally have been the last Drabblecast episode and last you ever heard from me if that amazing person had not at some point in their life been thoughtful and compassionate enough to sign up as a donor. I can't ever thank that person enough, or at all now, for saving my life. But what I can do is use this platform at my fingertips, this audience that I'm fortunate enough to have, and this moment that I don't deserve, to honor that person by beseeching you, pleading with you really, with a call of action. Consider registering as an organ donor if you aren't already. There's a major shortage, and I got extremely lucky. For lots of other people out there, the show ends far too abruptly, like this one almost did, and they don't get a second chance. Go to organdonor.gov to find out more, and consider how you might be able to make a huge difference. You know, 95% of U.S. adults support organ donation, but only 58% are actually signed up as donors. Every 10 minutes, someone's added to a waiting list somewhere, and each year the number of people on waiting lists continues to be much larger than both the number of donors and transplants, which are steadily growing. You can be the strangest and most cherished part of someone else's life. And body. Literally, as in your eyes could live on in someone else's freaking face. It's unsettling, it's baffling, it's crazy, it's weird, and it's a beautiful, beautiful gift. Think about it. OrganDonor.gov. Learn more how you can help. And speaking of help... Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 421. I'm a random guy who works in a hospital cafeteria. I've been asked to read this story to you. I don't know why. Today's story is The Life You Save May Be Your Own by Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor was a miserable genius, born in 1925 in Savannah, Georgia, diagnosed at age 27 with lupus, published this story at age 30, and died at age 39. The old woman and her daughter were sitting on their porch when Mr. Shiflet came up their road for the first time. The old woman slid to the edge of her chair and leaned forward, shading her eyes from the piercing sunset with her hand. The daughter could not see far in front of her and continued to play with her fingers. Although the old woman lived in this desolate spot with only her daughter and she had never seen Mr. Shiflet before, she could tell, even from a distance, that he was a tramp and no one to be afraid of. His left coat sleeve was folded up to show there was only half an arm in it, and his gaunt figure listed slightly to the side as if the breeze were pushing him. He had on a black town suit and a brown felt hat that was turned up in the front and down in the back, and he carried a tin toolbox by a handle. He came on at an amble up her road, his face turned toward the sun, which appeared to be balancing itself on the peak of a small mountain. 
The old woman didn't change her position until he was almost into her yard. Then she rose with one hand fisted on her hip. The daughter, a large girl in a short blue organdy dress, saw him all at once and jumped up and began to stamp and point and make excited, speechless sounds. Mr. Shiflet stopped just inside the yard and set his box on the ground and tipped his hat at her, as if she were not in the least afflicted. Then he turned toward the old woman and swung the hat all the way off. He had long, black, slick hair that hung flat from a part in the middle to beyond the tips of his ears on either side. His face descended in forehead for more than half its length and ended suddenly with his features just balanced over a jutting steel trap jaw. He seemed to be a young man, but he had the look of composed dissatisfaction as if he understood life thoroughly. Good evening, the old woman said. She was about the size of a cedar fence post, and she had a man's gray hat pulled down low over her head. The tramp stood looking at her and didn't answer. He turned his back and faced the sunset. He swung both his hole and his short arm up slowly so that they indicated an expanse of sky, and his figure formed a crooked cross. The old woman watched him with her arms folded across her chest, as if she were the owner of the sun, and the daughter watched, her head thrust forward and her fat, helpless hands hanging at the wrists. She had long, pink-gold hair and eyes as blue as a peacock's neck. He held the pose for almost fifty seconds, and then picked up his box and came onto the porch and dropped down on the bottom step. Lady, he said in a firm, nasal voice, I'd give a fortune to live where I could see me a son do that every evening. Does it every evening, the old woman said and sat back down. The daughter sat down too and watched him with a cautious, sly look as if he were a bird that had come up very close. He leaned to one side, rooting in his pants pocket, and in a second he brought out a package of chewing gum and offered her a piece. She took it and unpeeled it and began to chew without taking her eyes off him. He offered the old woman a piece, but she only raised her upper lip to indicate she had no teeth. Mr. Shiftless' pale, sharp glance had already passed over everything in the yard, the pump near the corner of the house and the big fig tree that three or four chickens were preparing to roost in, and had moved to a shed where he saw the square, rusted back of an automobile. "'You ladies drive?' he asked. "'That car ain't running fifteen year,' the old woman said. "'The day my husband died, it quit running.' "'Nothing is like it used to be, lady,' he said. "'The world is almost rotten.' "'That's right,' the old woman said. "'You from around here?' "'Named Tom T. Shifflet,' he murmured, looking at the tires. "'I'm pleased to meet you,' the old woman said. "'Named Lucinelle Crater. "'And daughter Lucinelle Crater. "'What are you doing around here, Mr. Shifflet?' He judged the car to be about a 1928 or 1929 Ford. Lady, he said, and turned and gave her his full attention. Let me tell you something. There's one of these doctors in Atlanta that's taken a knife and cut the human heart. The human heart. 
he repeated, leaning forward, out of a man's chest and held it in his hand. And he held his hand out, palm up, as if it were slightly weighted with the human heart, and studied it like a day-old chicken. And lady, he said, allowing a long, significant pause in which his head slid forward and his clay-colored eyes brightened, he don't know more about it than you or me. That's right, the old woman said. Why, if he were to take that knife and cut into every corner of it, he still wouldn't know no more than you or me what you want to bet. Nothing, the old woman said wisely. Where you come from, Mr. Shiflet? He didn't answer. He reached into his pocket and brought out a sack of tobacco and a package of cigarette papers and rolled himself a cigarette expertly with one hand and attached it in a hanging position to his upper lip. Then he took a box of wooden matches from his pocket and struck one on his shoe. He held the burning match as if he were studying the mystery of flame while it traveled dangerously towards his skin. The daughter began to make loud noises and to point to his hand and shake her finger at him. But when the flame was just before touching him, he leaned down with his hand cupped over it as if he were going to set fire to his nose and lit the cigarette. He flipped away the dead match and blew a stream of gray into the evening. A sly look came over his face. Lady, he said, nowadays people do anything anyways. I can tell you my name is Tom T. Shiflet and I come from Tarwater, Tennessee, but you never seen me before. How you know I ain't lying? How you know my name ain't Aaron Sparks, lady, and I come from Singleberry, Georgia? Or how you know it's not George Speeds, and I come from Lucy, Alabama? Or how you know I ain't Thompson Bright, from Tula Falls, Mississippi? I don't know nothing about you, the old woman muttered, irked. Lady, he said, people don't care how they lie. Maybe the best I can tell you is, I'm a man. But listen, lady, he said, and paused and made his tone more ominous still. What is a man? The old woman began to gum a seed. What you carry in that tin box, Mr. Shiflet? she asked. Tools, he said. I'm a carpenter. Well, if you come out here to work, I'll be able to feed you and give you a place to sleep, but I can't pay. I'll tell you that before you begin, she said. There was no answer at once, and no particular expression on his face. He leaned back against the two-by-four that helped support the porch roof. Lady, he said slowly, there's some men that some things mean more to them than money. The old woman rocked without comment, and the daughter watched the trigger that moved up and down in his neck. He told the old woman then that all most people were interested in was money, but he asked, what a man was made for. He asked her if a man was made for money or what. He asked her what she thought she was made for, but she didn't answer. She only sat rocking and wondered if a one-armed man could put a new roof on her garden house. He asked a lot of questions that she didn't answer. He told her that he was 28 years old and had lived a varied life. He had been a gospel singer, a foreman on the railroad, an assistant in an undertaking parlor, and he come over the radio for three months with Uncle Roy and his Red Creek Wranglers. 
He said he fought and bled in the armed service of his country and visited every foreign land, and that everywhere he had seen people that didn't care if they did a thing one way or another. He said he hadn't been raised that way. A fat yellow moon appeared in the branches of the fig tree, as if it were going to roost there with the chickens. He said that a man had to escape to the country to see the whole world, and that he wished he lived in a desolate place like this, where he could see the sun go down every evening like God made it to. Are you married or are you single? The old woman asked. There was a long silence. Lady, he finally asked, where would you find you an innocent woman today? I wouldn't have any of this trash I could just pick up. The daughter was leaning very far down, hanging her head almost between her knees, watching him through a triangular door she had made in her overturned hair. And suddenly she fell in a heap on the floor and began to whimper. Mr. Shiflet straightened her out and helped her get back in the chair. Is she your baby girl? he asked. My only, the old woman said, and she's the sweetest girl in the world. I would give her up for nothing on earth. She's smart, too. She can sweep the floor, cook, wash, feed the chickens, and hoe. I wouldn't give her up for a casket of jewels. No, he said kindly. Don't let ever any man take her away from you. Any man come after her, the old woman said. I'll have to stay around the place. Mr. Shiflet's eye in the darkness was focused on a part of the automobile bumper that glittered in the distance. Lady, he said, jerking his short arm up as if he could point with it to her house and yard and pump. There ain't a broken thing on this plantation that I couldn't fix for you, one-armed jackleg or not. I'm a man, he said with sullen dignity. Even if I ain't a whole one... I got, he said, tapping his knuckles on the floor to emphasize the immensity of what he was going to say, a moral intelligence, and his face pierced out of the darkness into a shaft of door light, and he stared at her as if he were astonished himself at this impossible truth. The old woman was not impressed with the phrase. I told you you could hang around and work for food, she said, if you don't mind sleeping in that car yonder. Why, listen, lady, he said with a grin of delight. The monks of old slept in their coffins. They wasn't as advanced as we are, the old woman said. The next morning, he began on the roof of the garden house, while Lucy now, the daughter, sat on a rock and watched him work. He had not been around a week before the change he had made in the place was apparent. He had patched the front and back steps, built a new hog pen, restored a fence, and taught Lucy now, who was completely deaf and had never said a word in her life, to say the word bird. The big rosy-faced girl followed him everywhere, saying, Bird! 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 And clapping her hands. The old woman watched from a distance, secretly pleased. She was ravenous for a son-in-law. Mr. Shiflet slept on the hard, narrow back seat of the car with his feet out the side window. He had his razor and a can of water on a crate that served him as a bedside table, and he put up a piece of mirror against the back glass and kept his coat neatly on a hanger that he hung over one of the windows. 
In the evenings, he sat on the steps and talked while the old woman and Lucy Nell rocked violently in their chairs on either side of him. The old woman's three mountains were black against the dark blue sky and were visited off and on by various planets and by the moon after it had left the chickens. Mr. Shiflet pointed out that the reason he had improved this plantation was because he had taken a personal interest. He said he was even going to make the automobile run. He had raised the hood and studied the mechanism, and he said he could tell that the car had been built in the days when cars were really built. You take one now, he said. One man puts in one bolt, and another man puts in another bolt, and another man puts in another bolt, so that it's a man for a bolt. That's why you have to pay so much for a car. You're paying all those men. Now, if you didn't have to pay but one man, you could get you a cheaper car, and one that had a personal interest taken in it, and it would be a better car. The old woman agreed with him that this was so. Mr. Shiflet said the trouble with the world was that nobody cared or stopped and took any trouble. He said he never would have been able to teach Lucy now to say a word if he hadn't cared and stopped long enough. Teach her to say something else, the old woman said. What do you want her to say next? Mr. Shiflet asked. The old woman's smile was broad and toothless and suggestive. Teach her to say sugar pie she said. Mr. Shiflet already knew what was on her mind. The next day, he began to tinker with the automobile, and that evening he told her that if she would buy a fan belt, he would be able to make the car run. The old woman said she would give him the money. You see that girl yonder? She asked, pointing to Lucy now, who was sitting on the floor a foot away, watching him, her eyes blue even in the dark. If it ever was a man wanted to take her away, I would say, no man on earth is going to take that sweet girl of mine away from me. But if he was to say, lady, I don't want to take her away. I want her right here. I would say, mister, I don't blame you none. I wouldn't pass up a chance to live in a permanent place and get the sweetest girl in the world myself. <laughs> you ain't no fool, I would say. How old is she? Mr. Shiflet asked casually. Fifteen, sixteen, the old woman said. The girl was nearly thirty, but because of her innocence, it was impossible to guess. It would be a good idea to paint it, too, Mr. Shiflet remarked. You don't want it to rust out. We'll see about that later, the old woman said. The next day, he walked into town and returned with the parts he needed and the cans of gasoline. Late in the afternoon, terrible noises issued from the shed, and the old woman rushed out of the house, thinking that Lucinelle was somewhere having a fit. Lucinelle was sitting on a chicken crate, stamping her feet and screaming, Bird! Bird! But her fuss was drowned out by the car. With a volley of blasts, it emerged from the shed, moving in a fierce and stately way. Mr. Shiflet was in the driver's seat, sitting very erect. He had an expression of serious modesty on his face, as if he had just raised the dead. That night, rocking on the porch, the old woman began her business at once. "'You want an innocent woman, don't you?' she asked sympathetically. "'You don't want none of this trash.' "'No, am I don't,' Mr. Shiflet said. 
one that can't talk, she continued, can't sass you back or use foul language. That's the kind for you to have right there. And she pointed to Lucy now, sitting cross-legged in her chair, holding both feet in her hands. That's right, he admitted. She wouldn't give me any trouble. Saturday, the old woman said, you and her and me can drive into town and get married. Mr. Shiflet eased his position on the steps. I can't get married right now, he said. Everything you want to do takes money, and I ain't got any. What you need with money, she asked. It takes money, he said. Some people do anything anyhow these days, but the way I think, I wouldn't marry no woman that I couldn't take on a trip like she was somebody. I mean, take her to a hotel and treat her. I wouldn't marry the Duchess Windsor, he said firmly, unless I could take her to a hotel and give her something good to eat. I was raised that way, and there ain't a thing I can do about it. My old mother taught me how to do. Lucy Nell don't even know what a hotel is, the old woman muttered. Listen here, Mr. Shiflet, she said, sliding forward in her chair. You'd be getting a permanent house and a deep well and the most innocent girl in the world. You don't need no money. Let me tell you something. There ain't any place in the world for a poor, disabled, friendless, drifting man. The ugly words settled in Mr. Shiflet's head like a group of buzzards in the top of a tree. He didn't answer at once. He rolled himself a cigarette and lit it, and then he said in an even voice, Lady, a man is divided into two parts, body and spirit. The old woman clamped her gums together. A body and a spirit, he repeated. The body, lady, is like a house. It don't go anywhere. But the spirit, lady, is like an automobile, always on the move, always... Listen, Mr. Shiflet, she said. My well never goes dry, and my house is always warm in the winter, and there's no mortgage on a thing about this place. You can go to the courthouse and see for yourself. And yonder under that shed is a fine automobile. She laid the bait carefully. You can have it painted by Saturday. I'll pay for the paint. In the darkness, Mr. Shiflet's smile stretched like a weary snake, waking up by a fire. After a second, he recalled himself and said, I'm only saying a man's spirit means more to him than anything else. I would have to take my wife off for the weekend with no regards at all for cost. I gotta follow where my spirit says to go. I'll give you $15 for a weekend trip. The old woman said in a crabbed voice, That's the best I can do. That wouldn't hardly pay for more than the gas in the hotel, he said. It wouldn't feed her. Seventeen fifty, the old woman said. That's all I got, so it isn't any use you trying to milk me. You can take a lunch. Mr. Shiflet was deeply hurt by the word milk. He didn't doubt that she had more money sewed up in her mattress but he had already told her he was not interested in her money. I'll make that do, he said, and rose and walked off without treating with her further. On Saturday, the three of them drove into the town in the car that the paint had barely dried on, and Mr. Shiflet and Lucy now were married in the ordinary's office while the old woman witnessed. As they came out of the courthouse, Mr. Shiflet began twisting his neck in his collar.
He looked morose and bitter, as if he had been insulted when someone held him. That didn't satisfy me none, he said. That was just a woman in an office. Did nothing but paperwork and blood tests. What do they know about my blood? If they was to take my heart and cut it out, he said, they wouldn't know a thing about me. It didn't satisfy me at all. It satisfied the law, the old woman said sharply. The law, Mr. Shiflet said and spit. It's the law that don't satisfy me. He had painted the car dark green with a yellow band around it just under the windows. The three of them climbed in the front seat and the old woman said, Don't Lucy now look pretty. Looks like a baby doll. Lucy now was dressed up in a white dress that her mother had uprooted from a trunk and there was a Panama hat on her head with a bunch of red wooden cherries on the brim. Every now and then, her placid expression was changed by a sly, isolated little thought, like a shoot of green in the desert. You got a prize, the old woman said. Mr. Shiflet didn't even look at her. They drove back to the house to let the old woman off and pick up the lunch. When they were ready to leave, she stood staring in the window of the car with her fingers clenched around the glass. Tears began to seep sideways out of her eyes and run along the dirty creases in her face. I ain't never parted with her for two days before, she said. Hmm, Mr. Schiffler started the motor. And I wouldn't have let no man have her but you, because I seen you would do right. Goodbye, sugar baby, she said, clutching at the sleeve of the white dress. Lucy now looked straight at her and didn't seem to see her there at all. Mr. Shiflet eased the car forward so that she had to move her hands. The early afternoon was clear and open and surrounded by pale blue sky. Although the car would go only 30 miles an hour, Mr. Shiflet imagined a terrific climb and dip and swerve that went entirely to his head so that he forgot his morning bitterness. He had always wanted an automobile, but he had never been able to afford one before. He drove very fast because he wanted to make Mobile by nightfall. Occasionally, he stopped his thoughts long enough to look at Lucinelle in the seat beside him. She had eaten the lunch as soon as they were out of the yard, and now she was pulling the cherries off the hat one by one and throwing them out the window. He became depressed in spite of the car. He had driven about a hundred miles when he decided that she must be hungry again and at the next small town they came to, he stopped in front of an aluminum-painted eating place called The Hot Spot, and took her in and ordered her a plate of ham and grits. The ride had made her sleepy, and as soon as she got up on the stool, she rested her head on the counter and shut her eyes. There was no one in The Hot Spot but Mr. Shiflet and the boy behind the counter, a pale youth with a greasy rag hung over his shoulder. Before he could dish up the food, she was snoring gently. Give it to her when she wakes up, Mr. Shiflet said. I'll pay for it now. The boy bent over and stared at the pink hair and the half-shut, sleeping eyes. Then he looked up and stared at Mr. Shiflet. She looks like an angel of God, he murmured. Hitchhiker, Mr. Shiflet explained. I can't wait. I gotta make Tuscaloosa. The boy bent over again 
and very carefully touched his finger to a strand of the golden pink hair, and Mr. Shiflet left. He was more depressed than ever as he drove on by himself. The late afternoon had grown hot and sultry, and the country had flattened out. Deep in the sky, a storm was preparing very slowly and without thunder, as if it meant to drain every drop of air from the earth before it broke. There were times when Mr. Shiflet preferred not to be alone. He felt, too, that a man with a car had a responsibility to others, and he kept his eye out for a hitchhiker. Occasionally, he saw a sign that warned, Drive carefully. The life you save may be your own. The narrow road dropped off on either side into dry fields, and here and there a shack or a filling station stood in a clearing. The sun began to set directly in front of the automobile. It was a reddening ball that through his windshield was slightly flat on the bottom and top. He saw a boy in overalls and a gray hat standing on the edge of the road, and he slowed the car down and stopped in front of him. The boy didn't have his hand raised to thumb the ride. He was only standing there, but he had a small cardboard suitcase, and his hat was set on his head in a way to indicate that he had left somewhere for good. Son, Mr. Shiflet said, I see you want a ride. The boy didn't say he did or he didn't, but he opened the car door and got in, and Mr. Shiflet started driving again. The child held the suitcase on his lap and folded his arms on top of it. He turned his head and looked out the window away from Mr. Shiflet. Mr. Shiflet felt oppressed. Son, he said after a minute, I got the best old mother in the world, so I reckon you only got the second best. The boy gave him a quick dark glance and then turned his face back out the window. It's nothing so sweet, Mr. Shiflet continued, as a boy's mother. She taught him his first prayers at her knee. She give him love when no other would. She told him what was right and what wasn't, and she seen that he'd done the right thing. Son, he said, I never rued a day in my life like the one I rued when I left that old mother of mine. The boy shifted in his seat, but he didn't look at Mr. Shiflet. He unfolded his arms and put one hand on the door handle. My mother was an angel of God, Mr. Shiflet said in a very strained voice. He took her from heaven and gave her to me, and I left her. His eyes were instantly clouded over with a mist of tears. The car was barely moving. The boy turned angrily in the seat. You go to the devil, he cried. My old woman is a flea bag and yours is a stinking polecat. And with that, he flung the door open and jumped out with his suitcase into the ditch. Mr. Shiflet was so shocked that for about a hundred feet, he drove along slowly with the door still open. A cloud, the exact color of the boy's hat and shaped like a turnip, had descended over the sun and another, worse-looking, crouched behind the car. Mr. Shiflet felt the rottenness of the world was about to engulf him. He raised his arm and let it fall to his breast. Oh, Lord, he prayed, break forth and wash the slime from this earth. The turnip continued to slowly descend. 
After a few minutes, there was a guffawing peal of thunder from behind, and fantastic raindrops like tin can tops crashed over the rear of Mr. Shiflet's car. Very quickly, he stepped on the gas, and with his stump sticking out the window, he raced the galloping shower into Mobile. And that's our story. As with many of O'Connor's works, this one featured a pair of unscrupulous characters, each trying to gain advantage over the other. Back then, we called people like that unscrupulous characters. Today, we just call them assholes. What's interesting about how society has changed is that now, people like them can choose to anonymously post their stories on a Reddit forum called Am I the Asshole? And they can ask internet strangers to weigh in with their opinions about their behavior. In this case, I can imagine Lucy Nell Carter, the senior, posting, Am I the asshole for wanting someone to take care of my farm and my disabled daughter? While glossing over the part where she lies to an itinerant vagabond and essentially gives him permission to rape her severely disabled 15-year-old daughter. Yeah, you're the asshole. And then, of course, we'd have Mr. Shiflet posting, Am I the asshole for wanting to finally own a used car? Without making clear that in the process of stealing the car, he abandoned a severely disabled person by the side of a highway a hundred miles from her home, and that because she lacked the ability to communicate, she would likely never see her mother again. Yeah, you're the asshole too. And, speaking of assholes, it's time for a drabble. Drabbles are 100-word stories. No more, no less. They're devilishly fun to write, and when you write one that you like, we hope you'll post it in the Drabblecast forum online for everyone to enjoy. Who knows? Uncle Norm might even pick yours to read on the air. Today's Drabble was written by a nameless hospital cafeteria worker. It's called The Moment of Death for Howard Phillips Lovecraft. As the pain in his abdomen reached an excruciating crescendo, Lovecraft crushed his tongue into a pulp and yielded to intestinal cancer. An unknowable amount of time later, Lovecraft opened his eyes and gasped at the lack of pain, absence of blood, and the elderly black gentleman sitting next to him, reading a book of nursery rhymes, in a room well lit by golden sunlight. Birds chirped sweetly. Am I dead? Yes, it's just you and me sitting quietly in this room for all eternity. Lovecraft drew in a deep breath to scream. His attempt produced only the giggle of a happy baby. H.P. Lovecraft was the father of weird fiction. He really did die from intestinal cancer, and he really was a racist asshole. Well, that's all the time we have for today. 
I can smell that something's gone wrong with the hospital meatloaf, so I better get back to the kitchen. The Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons license, which means share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. Tell a friend, spread the weird. And if you aren't too busy stealing cars or posting on Reddit, please consider supporting the Drabblecast in any number of small ways that are deeply meaningful to our little community. Old Uncle Norm quit his day job to run the Drabblecast universe for us full-time, and our donations and online reviews of his work make it possible for that to continue. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.